At the Cryptid Keeper podcast, we love to laugh at the darkness, but we would never laugh at the rich cultures that explore it, or the unique cultural significance of the creatures explored. The jokes within are on no one but us. We encourage additional research on the subjects covered here, and hope that a comedy podcast is not your primary source of information. Welcome to the Cryptid Keeper Podcast, the podcast for cryptids and their keepers. That's us. And if you're listening, it's you too. I'm Alex Flanagan. And I'm Addison Peacock. And you are you. And there's no better person to be. And that's the show. (laughs) Thanks for joining us this week. It's been great. We really like having you here. Um, Yeah. It's weird not having you like here face to face. Like I make a joke and feel like I should look at you and then you're not. Yeah. The visual cues don't happen. They don't quite work. I mean, which I guess like is fair. It puts us in a better headspace to stop making so many visual jokes on our audio (laughs) medium. Maybe. But, you know, now we get to suffer as they have suffered. For all that we've done. Although I can still make you look at pictures of stuff. I'll just send it to you. You still can. That's true. It'll be good. So I brought my boy this week. Nice. What boy did you bring me? I don't know if I want to call him a boy. I don't know what to call this. It's a lot. I'm going to call them. It's a whole thing. Like more than last week a lot? No, just a different a different kind. Thank God. I don't know if I could take another, no, another no, couple no. of those situations. A very, a very different kind of a lot. Not a, okay. not a, not a ripped anteater man that sucks your brains out your skull and or does an unspeakable act that I will not. Yeah, if you missed describe. the Kapalohu episode, that must be a wild set of words for you to hear. Yeah, go if back. If you didn't miss the Kapalohu episode, it's probably a more wild set of words for you to hear. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry for this. So would you bring me? All right. So I decided to, because I, if you uh, aren't aware as a listener, or maybe Alex, if you've forgotten, I don't know that you would. I recently moved to California. Say what? Yeah. So I started researching California cryptids, particularly Southern California, but it kind of widened to just sort of California in general. And uh, I found something that is very spooky and very sort of linked to something I've talked about on here before, but okay. potentially. And there are these entities that are referred to as the Dark Watchers. Have you heard oh of them? Oh my god. Uh, no, did we mention did we mention this with shadow people? Or? No, there is some crossover, but the difference is they appear in this a very specific location. Oh, okay. And it's to lots of people, not just to it's, it, they serve a very different purpose from shadow people. They appear in a very similar way. So I'm going to hop to a entry on Skeptoid.com. There is actually an episode of the Skeptoid podcast about the uh, Dark Watchers. But essentially, just before I dive into the details of that, they appear around the Santa Lucia Mountains. They basically appear to travelers, people hiking mm-hmm. in the area or walking in that area. Um, and then they disappear the second you look back to see them again. Oh. They appear for a little bit, and then they're gone when you look back. And there's some debate about the origin of the story, but it's mostly accepted that they date back to Shumash Native American stories dating back a thousand years. (laughs) They're pretty old. 
Yes. Um, and of course, there have been different interpretations of them, but the idea of like a shadowy people that appears in those mountains has been part of Shumash folklore for a very long time. So I'm going to just dive into by Brian Dunning on the Skeptoid podcast website, the entry, and just read as an intro here. Yeah, let's hear it. They stand motionless in long black cloaks, surveying the crags and peaks of California's Santa Lucia mountains. The dark watchers look out to sea, often in broad-brimmed hats, often with a staff or walking stick, but always still and silent and featureless. Travelers are said to spot the watchers on some rocky prominence, but by the second glance, they have always vanished. Tales of the Dark Watchers appear in many books and are still reported on the internet. And then there's a few samples from an online forum that they grabbed, but I want to save those for when I talk about sightings. Okay, Um, now I have an immediate reaction to this, and it may or may not have something to do with my sort of general setup here. But, like, first of all, you say the Dark Watchers, my immediate thought is, like, okay, either that's, like, an extremely 60s sci-fi thing to call something, or that's, like, an extremely, like, tropey high fantasy thing to call something. And then when you described these, as I was sitting here in front of my microphone looking up at the map of Middle Earth on my wall, I have to tell you that they pretty much just sound like rig wraiths, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I know. No, they, they have brimmed hats, like wide-brimmed hats. They're wizard ring wraiths. No, 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 no. I need to emphasize that this is like a – I'll, I'll send you like an artist's rendering. It's like a flat top, like wide-brimmed hat, like a – Like a carnival barker hat? Yes. <laughs> what? <laughs> But there, but there's not colors, so take away color because it's all the dark thing. Is they're essentially kind of I would call them sort of a subset of shadow people. Potentially, they're kind of featureless, dark shape, but with hats. It's, yeah, they got hats, cloaks, and a walking stick. All right. They were that's... named in 1602 by a Spanish cartographer. Mm-hmm. That's not that. That's not that. The mountains. <laughs> The mountains were named in 1602 by a Spanish photographer. Sorry. But it's a mountain range in central California, stretching from Monterey at the north all the way south to San Luis Obispo, if you're not familiar with the layout. They are basically, they are a huge mountain range in California, stretching from the north Mm -hmm. to the south. The Santa Lucia is north of Ragged Point. They're the coast. They form a wall of cliffs 100 kilometers long, known as Big Sur, to which the Pacific Coast Highway follows. In some places, precariously. You know how there's area. Have you seen like pictures or videos of the Pacific Coast Highway kind of going yeah, around yeah, the sort of cliffside? Yeah, that's where this is. Kind of spooky setting a little bit. It's a little bit dangerous. It's a little bit kind of larger than life. Mm-hmm. And that is specifically where these are supposed to hang out. That's where these things appear. And again, I should say they don't seem to do anything malicious in contrast to last week's thing, or and also in contrast <laughs> to some stories of shadow people, either them heralding dark things coming, bad things coming, or them actually actively causing harm. They seem to just kind of appear to travelers on this, yeah, on this like Rocky Mountainside. They appear mentioned in quite a lot of literature. I'll come back to some specifics in a minute, but They appear in a John Steinbeck short story called Flight. They appear in a Robinson Jeffers poem entitled Such Counsels You Gave to Me. And then, and this is nonspecific, there comes some debate here about if it's being misattributed to the Shumash folklore, but it is supposedly 
appearing in Chumash folklore dating back for thousands of years. And that is a uh, tribe that has been located around the California central coast and among the Channel Islands for 13,000 years. So um, the most detailed and authoritative account of the Chumash beliefs is probably the 1974 1,200-page doctoral dissertation by Thomas Blackburn, which was published as December's Child, a book of Chumash oral narratives. So it was essentially a compendium of all these oral past down stories. Oh, hell yeah. That's super cool. What a neat dissertation. Yeah, yeah, right? Included 111 Shumash oral narratives collected by an American linguist, John Peabody Harrington, between 1912 and 1928. This is just a fact about him, but his body of unpublished research, most of it on native people of California, takes up over 200 meters of shelf space at the Smithsonian's National Anthropological Archives. Man, that's the dream. This dude... Did some work. Yeah, no kidding. It's so funny. That's like such a fascinating, like specific field of research. And this is going to be a tangent for a little bit, but mm-hmm. it's just like the period of history wherein we suddenly had, and it's different with books, but like specifically with like audio recording, once we specifically had recording technology, then like all of these possibilities opened up to start canonizing things in a way that they weren't before. But the problem mm-hmm. with that is there were very specific kinds of people that had access to that technology, right? Which meant very specific people didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like the advent of recording technology actually kind of whitewashed history in a very specific way, at least in terms of like the audio processing world. Yeah. But what's cool about that is that there, it's not cool about that. What's cool (laughs) about like that movement in history is that there were also people who then like made it their mission to go out and sort of like actively counteract that. And actually one of my like favorite fields of study is um, something called the Smithsonian Folkways Collection, which Mm -hmm. is a collection of sound recordings specifically done by two musicologists named John and Alan Lomax. They were a father and son team. Then I wrote a 20 page paper on them in college and they're super cool, but they were musicologists. um, Some of the first of like their kind in that specific kind of field of research. And they basically took recording technology that was available to them and went around to uh, the Georgia islands and, and like a bunch of different folk cultures, like in Appalachia and across the country. And they recorded a lot of indigenous cultures and a lot of like, for example, um, former slave chants and like black American folk songs and things like that, that otherwise would not have been recorded and probably would have been lost as the oral tradition stopped taking part. Um, Because as people started like listening to recordings, they didn't need to actively like sing and pass down songs anymore. And so some of those things were going to get totally lost. Um, So work like that or work like this guy going around and collecting, you know, a thousand pages of just indigenous stories is really, really fascinating because that's such an intentional act in the face of such a passive movement to Mm -hmm. like erase those voices. Absolutely. And there is something to be said. Some of my sightings are a little bit more firsthand, but there is something a little bit frustrating that I have. You come across a lot in cryptozoological research that most of the discussion of the Shumash folklore connection is coming from pretty much exclusively white people saying, I've read third hand these things that say this. Right. Um, Yeah. I'm like, maybe you could let somebody talk for themselves. But alas, here we are. That's what we have. But essentially, this guy, the guy from Skeptoid, dove a little bit into this guy's research, essentially could not dive all the way in because there is a lot of it. Very many. There are 1,200 pages. But 
he does mention that one potential connection between the stories is a uh, description of these creatures called, and forgive my pronunciation, but uh, Nunasis, uh, which are monstrous and misshapen animals that can look like men, that they come up to the middle world, which is the world that we occupy from the lower world, which is like mm-hmm. the world of spirits and kind of darker things, like dark spirits. And then they are, they do bring, in this specific story, they bring misfortune, illness, bad luck. But that doesn't necessarily mean that is what these things are, the Dark Watchers specifically, but it is sort of a shadowy entity that appears and can look like people. There's potentially a link between, I found not specific to Shumash, but there are some other legends from around the US and from a couple other countries as well that I'll talk about later that are potentially connected to the lore. But Mm -hmm. other than that, he couldn't find a distinct connection. So it's entirely possible that the idea that it's linked to the uh, Shumash folklore is specifically like kind of an invention of ghost story writers trying to give legitimacy to their story being like it's been around for a thousand years uh as people do uh so the that should be taken with a grain of salt i would love to dig into that compendium of oral stories i i just think that's so interesting but obviously you have to have time to read 1200 pages yeah it's a lot however if you are ever looking for something like in a similar vein um the smithsonian website does have a lot of their like archives specifically with the folkways collections like Mm -hmm. um digitized and you can read some of them online mm-hmm. they're actually they're a really good source if you are um, if you're still in college and you're studying any sort of like history or english degree or anthropology i guess uh, would also be a good one but you can use those those resources and they're an excellent archive for you yeah especially if you're into like folk history which i clearly am oh absolutely <laughs> wait are you are you are you into folk history is that like a thing for you yeah, yeah. what i dabble so you dabble so specifically This guy from Skeptoid, uh, Brian Dunning, says he was unable to find a distinct mention of the Dark Watchers being where they are and behaving exactly as they do as we understand it now, which is to say just standing there, prior to 1937. A thousand years. Yeah, that's the earliest mention of them (laughs) specifically, but there is crossover with other stories. There is sort of similar stuff, so it's not unreasonable that it's like potentially grew out of a conglomeration of different things, but... In terms of specific mentions of the Dark Watchers, that is very recent. I'm going to hop over to a different resource now. I like kind of, and we don't talk about them super often. I mean, location-based. A lot of the things we talk about have like a stomping grounds. But I am very interested in the fact that these specifically don't seem to even move from their spot. Yeah, that is fascinating. I was talking to somebody um, the other day, actually, one of our listeners, Zach. I was talking to him about specifically Monster of the Week campaigns and was talking about mm-hmm. how I'm a really big fan of like monsters in Monster of the Week that or or just like settings that have like setting as a character in their story. And I'm very, very fond of like monsters that have the same sort of things. Like when we talk about the Rougarou or like the Flatwoods monster or the Hodag, like monsters like that where they're setting that they you know are are involved in is such a central part of their identity and their lore and we went into a big discussion on that on the hodag episode and i'm not going to like draw that back out now but Mm -hmm. it's fascinating because this seems to be something kind of different where it's not so much like the cultural setting of it as it is like the physical geographic location of the thing is central to what makes these things what they are. Exactly and uh hopping over to beyondsciencetv.com 
I just love some of the website titles you come across when you're doing pretty this great. stuff. It's pretty good. So let's get beyond science for a little bit. We went from skeptoid, which is a very balanced and reasonable <laughs> look at things, <laughs> and we're hopping over to beyond science. But I mean, also, this is actually a very cool little uh, Science can only take us so far. Exactly. What is your science against the dark watchers? It is, <laughs> it is such a grand, that is also what, that's what drew me to it. I saw it on this list of like 10 California based cryptids or, and just mysterious things. And I thought that is grandiose. That is. It's really strong branding. Um, I also kind impact. of feel like it's the name that like a friend of yours would have for his garage band in like seventh grade. Oh, I was thinking it sounded kind of like a uh, like vigilante group started on like Reddit. <laughs> oh my God, you're so right. And that's so much worse. I know. I'm sorry. Get worse. It, it does worse. get worse. They're like, we are the... D- I'm just... Sorry. I'm imagining like, I've seen a few episodes of The Big Bang Theory because at one point in time, my mom used to watch it. Sometimes Gina's not right about everything. I'm just imagining like the voice of Howard from The Big Bang Theory, if that means anything to anyone. He's the one with a bowl cut being like, we are the dark watchers. We know all, we see all, and we won't stay silent. Like, just a... Yeah. <laughs> but he's got like he's got like hacker glasses on. I don't know what hacker glasses oh even are, but he's, but he's wearing them. He's wearing them. And he's Big got Bang like, Theory a, like a is finally ending after 12 years. I know it is. The evil I, I will admit, I did watch the first season and I liked the first season partially because I was in high school at the time and we were yeah. watching it in my AP bio class after we finished the taking the exam. <laughs> but like here's the thing that I don't get about the Big Bang Theory is it's like all of the characters in it are really, really cruel reductions of the kind of people they seem to think their target audience is. Oh, that's the thing, it's too. It's, like, that's, inexplicable. That's the thing, is I think it's a show that's marketed as being for nerds, but, like, rest assured, that is not who that show is for. It is for people who want to laugh at them. It's, like, parody of, quote-unquote, nerd. Yeah, but, like, people who hate nerds, how do they sit through that show long enough to laugh at it? I don't know. Anyway, it's I don't a know. Little... One time I saw a clip, and this was straight up a clip from Big Bang Theory. It was, like, an ad for, like, the next episode. It was, like, this is, like, recent, like, season 11 or something, I guess. Mm-hmm. And, like, the whole conceit of, like, the joke, quote-unquote, Penny made some comment about Darth Vader being Luke's father and then like looked at the camera, disgusted with herself and was like, how do I know that? And it's like, everyone knows that. Well, and Everyone's that's, known that since the 80s. Yeah. And that's the thing too. Like the thesis statement of that show, I feel like doesn't hold up anymore in a cultural climate where like the box office bestsellers are superhero movies. You know what I mean? Yeah. So much of nerd culture traditionally, and Star Wars movies. But uh, I was going to say like sidebar, if you're interested in cultural criticism and TV and film criticism as much as I am and applying like gender theory and important things like that to it. There's a great video essay by pop culture detective called The Adorkable Misogyny of the Big Bang Theory. And it is 100% worth watching. Um, Or you could join the dark watchers and take back the Big Bang Theory from the feminists. (laughs) Oh my God. Uh I know. That's like Check out my Twitch channel. It's like one step away from the Proud Boys, and I'm very uncomfortable with it. I don't know what that is, and I don't want to. 
Okay, well then just laugh at the silly name and then li- continue living in blissful ignorance of them. All you right, don't cool. need to know. So I'm going to talk about the Dark Watchers, the real ones, the real <laughs> ones, the ones that stand silently. None of them are fake Dark Watchers. The ones that do what they should do and stand silently and grandly on the cliffside of the Santa Lucia Prove Mountains. your commitment to the cause. Alex, I swear to God. I will eject you. I will press an eject button and your seat will sprout like rocket launchers and you will shoot through the ceiling. So I, you say that, but I'm the one with the kick band buttons in the Zencaster channel. Alex, don't. Don't do it. We'll never recover from that. The Dark Watchers, they are seen only at twilight, as many spooky things are, standing silhouetted against the night sky along the peaks and ridges of the mountains. They're silhouetted against the night sky? Well, the, like, twilight, so it's like, yeah. there's, like, a little bit of light for them to be silhouetted against. Right, so it's... The early the evening sky, alright. Okay. I didn't write that. Leave me alone. I understand. So this I've only found on this site, but I do like it. I want to believe. I love this because even though there is no reason for us to believe that the Dark Watchers have ears or eyes, this website says they're believed to possess incredible hearing as well as impeccable eyesight. They have ears and eyes everywhere. All corners of Reddit. They have no visible ears nor eyes. They are featureless. That's like a huge part of them. Um... (laughs) They're also immune to high-tech detection and prefer only to reveal themselves to trekkers or travelers who are equipped with simple items like hats and sticks, perhaps because they recognize them as one of their own. You're part of the stick hat club. You know that comic where the guy's like- (laughs) Same hat, same hat. Damn it, you got there before me, yeah. That's what they're doing. That's actually, that's actually, oh, that paints them in a very cute light, actually, if that's, that's all we're doing. That's very charming. Actually, what if they have, like, extremely limited eyesight and they can only sort of make out, like, vague shapes? And so every time they see somebody with a stick and a hat, they're like, oh, they're a like, friend. Oh, oh, my God. We are the same. Yeah. I Tom, recommend. is that Tom? <laughs> Tom, is that you? Tom? You? Tom? <laughs> we haven't seen you in years. We thought you were gone. Oh, man. Hmm. They don't make any kind of sound or anything, do they? Oh, no. They are silent and stoic. (sighs) Man. Dream man. Honestly. (laughs) I was going to say, they're very tall. They're tall, dark, and handsome. Loves hiking. Tall. Silent. Mm. So Mm. quiet. Mm. Mysterious. The second time you look back to see them, they're gone. They've vanished from sight forever. (laughs) Honestly, this is sounding better and better. It just gets better and better. Get Um, you a freak like that. (laughs) Help. Honestly, I just love them. So good. So I want to talk about some possible explanations. Something that comes up time and time again on this show is that our brains are very good at filling in perceived gaps with just kind of fake information. Our brains have more fake news than Fox, like, sometimes, and... This is this topical. This show just got political, dunking on Fox News, Um, something no one else has ever done before. But essentially, like it's very common for our eyes and our brains to play tricks on us, especially when our senses are on high alert, our adrenaline is high, and also when you can't see as well. It's actually a a pretty well-known fact that people, when you play the Bloody Mary game, like the sleepover game, that you Mm -hmm. are likely to see something in the bathroom mirror because in that level of low lighting, looking at an image like of your face, your brain is trying to filter through the information and also will start to filter out what it perceives to be unnecessary information and your face will appear to change. 
So, like, if you've ever played Bloody Mary and seen a different face in the mirror, that was legit. It's just that was your brain trying to parse what it was seeing. Or maybe it was the ghost of either Mary Queen of Scots or Mary Tudor or just some unknown woman named Mary who died. No one can make up their mind who that urban legend is about because I've heard, like, four different versions. There's, like, a club on the other side of, like, Marys that qualify. It's the Bloody Mary Society. Yeah, it is. And they get together every Sunday for brunch and And they have have Bloody Marys. Marys. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And they go, oh, we're so bad. Okay, anyway. That's um, actually going to be my next, like, I think, like, fun novel for middle-aged women is about, like, this group of of spooky ladies on the other side finding themselves. and Can I adapt it into a Sex in the City-style TV show? Oh, please do. Although okay, I was thinking way more like in the in the style of that article about um, like Ann Taylor. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. This will be like sex in the city for women in their 50s. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So anyway, <laughs> according to psychologists, illusions, hallucinations or misrepresentation of natural stimulus can be brought on by exhaustion or isolation, which are both fairly common if you've been hiking for a long time on the trails of the Santa Lucia mountain range. If you are alone out there or you've been hiking for days or whatever you've been doing. There's also, and I am fascinated with this, I've talked about, no, I don't think I've talked about this on mic before, but I have talked about this before. Are you familiar with infrasound? Not really, no. Okay, infrasound, it it can be generated by wind, and infrasound between 7 and 19 hertz in range has been shown to cause feelings of fear and panic in people. It, like, induces anxiety. It's a sound range that sets off this, like, some sort of instinctual response in our bodies and gives us this feeling of dread. And it can be generated by the wind, especially in mountainous areas. So it's often connected to paranormal sightings. So people hear this sound that they're not really aware of that their body naturally reacts to with a sense of extreme dread and fear. And that makes you feel like something is watching you or like you're going to see something or something is wrong. And oh, that's so fascinating. Yeah, there's a there was a study. The University of Hertfordshire uh, conducted an experiment where they played music with and without tones of 17 hertz frequency in the background. And when the people heard or felt music with the 17 hertz tones, they described feeling nervous, anxious, or fearful. They felt pressure on their chests, chills on their back, feelings which are often associated with ghost sightings. So, which is so fascinating. And I've, I've, I've read about it before, but when it came up, when I was reading about this, I got very excited because as much as I get freaked out by it, the ways in which our bodies and our brains can kind of be tricked almost into things is very interesting to me. And I also want to know like the evolutionary reason behind that. I feel like there has to be a reason that that sound range makes us feel like that. It's because that's what sound ghosts make. Oh shoot. Maybe. (laughs) See, that's the thing. I'm assuming that that's a scientific explanation for why people think they see ghosts, but it might very well be the other way around. We developed that <laughs> That's the sound that ghosts make. To warn us that ghosts are coming. That's entirely possible. I was thinking like, uh, is it like a a storm is cut? Like I was thinking if it's generated, if that kind of range is often generated by like high levels of wind, is it like a storm is coming kind of thing? Like a Yeah. And my guess is if it causes a physiological response, um, then what it's probably intended to do is like wake you up if you're in danger and don't mm-hmm. know it. Right. Like mm-hmm. that's interesting. And another way in which your brain can play tricks on you, there's an optical illusion called the broken specter, which is, a potential explanation for this. Essentially, it's a mountain specter or broken specter can occur in certain atmospheric conditions. A person's shadow, if the sun is at the right angle, can be cast 
onto a cloud bank around them, which can make it look like there is a large shadowy human in front of them or to the side, like somewhere in relationship oh, to yeah, them. That's really fascinating. So this can- is jumping back just a second, but I'm really oh, yeah. curious. I'm, just, I'm sorry. I'm just thinking like I, for a hot second, got really, really into like the Stanley Superhumans TV show. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know if you watched that. It was like, well, there were two like similar shows. So there was a Stanley reality show where people competed to be superheroes and that was wild but this one was actually like going around and like interviewing people who had documented like paranatural abilities Mm -hmm. and some of them were like like a person whose body just didn't produce lactic acid so he could exert ridiculous amounts of muscular strain endlessly Mm -hmm. um like so literally like a supernatural ability but not one that like has any sort of paranormal cause to it, just one that's like, oh, you're like a literal superhero. Or yeah. there was somebody whose like reaction time was faster than any other documented human's reaction time. So he could like slice a bullet in half as it was fired at him with a katana. And it was like, oh my nuts. God. Yeah. So like people who are like real life superheroes, but then they also went into like the science behind why their bodies were able to do this thing and like the physiological explanation for it, which was really, really cool. But I was just wondering if people who have like, like a sixth sense or people who have like can like sense when danger is nearby or whatever. I wonder if those people are more sensitive to this particular sound range than other people. I wonder. That's a very good question. And I'd be willing to bet that they probably are. Especially there's some people who are like really, really sensitive to that idea of like eyes on the back of your neck or like, Mm -hmm. you know, something being wrong nearby. Like I'm just to be fair, (laughs) I have that feeling a lot and that's just because I have an anxiety disorder. So hey. Well yeah, Um, fair. So but I mean people who seem to be able to like anticipate bad things before they happen. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there's something to be said for that. Um, Actually, I was just listening to, and I've been talking about this show so much, but I was listening to an episode of the podcast Ologies uh, where they talked to a shark scientist. And I really hope you were going to cut that sentence off one word no, sooner they talked to a shark. No, they talked to a shark scientist. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff in that episode, but something he talked about is that he himself has experienced this and he's talked to a lot of people. He calls them like water people. They're people and it's not a species. Don't get excited. It's not a separate species of people who live in the water. But he means like Zoras. Thank you. No, he means people who spend a lot of time out at sea, like surfers, deep sea fishermen, like a lot of people who are just out in the open water a lot. Grizzled boat captains. They describe this sense that they get, like just a prickle on the back of your neck when they know it's time to get out of this area. It's time to go. And they don't have an explanation for why. They can't, they could never tell you exactly what sets that off, but they know it's time to move out of this area. And he described feeling that same feeling at one point in time uh, and essentially saying he's never had a, a frightening encounter with a shark in the ocean, but more so that he's been out in the ocean around like evening time when they start mm-hmm. to come out and just gotten a little feeling, a little prickle on the back of your neck that says it's time to go and i just think that's a really interesting kind of vestigial element of the fact that we were at one point in time essentially prey animals and i feel like we do have some instincts left to say there's danger here like Um, shark sense no shark sense is what you get if you're bitten by a radioactive shark Oh, my bad. Yeah. Can you, like, keep up for, like, a second? (laughs) For once in your life? Could you please just try and keep up, Alex? I swear to God. So, now, Exemplar.com. Now, here's our shadow people connection. Exemplar.com makes the connection between – now, I don't know if you thought about this, but I certainly did when I saw the first descriptions of the Dark Watchers. The connection between the – very notorious and oft-discussed Hatman. Everybody's waiting for the man with the hat. Oh, see, I was thinking Hatman, 
bring me a hat. Oh, make it. Oh, I got nothing the more than that. Best hat that I've ever got. Um, <laughs> oh God, <laughs> wasn't good. Um, uh, you went for it, and I respect that. Val, cut that out. No, Val, you keep that in. Okay. Um, so anyway, it's however it's been noted that the stories of the Dark Watchers predate reports of the Hat Man, even if you're just going by the uh, first reported discussion of it in 1931. So maybe they're related, maybe they're not. Maybe there was Do the thing. Dark Watchers predate the invention of hats? Absolutely not. There were hats in 1931, <laughs> Alex. Well, I mean, if they are like thousands of years old. I mean, maybe. When were hats invented? I don't... When did a caveman put a leaf on his head and keep it there on purpose? I don't know. It um, might have been a cave person of indiscriminate gender. You're right. I'm so sorry. We are all influenced on a subconscious level by the society in which we live, and we have to constantly unlearn the messages that we are given. <laughs> well, whoever the first brave cave being was that invented a stylish yet effective way to stay shady in the sun... I respect them. I respect them, too. So uh, also, Exemplar brings up the idea that many witnesses and locals believe they're spirits, and there's a lot of debate about if they're good or not. And this is what I was saying before. There's no record of them doing anything bad. People mm-hmm. are just, you know, as you might be if you see a mysterious shadowy being just lurking on the mountainside. You might – I shouldn't say lurking. That's putting some bias behind it. But you might get a little nervous. But – Some people believe that they bring bad luck. Others believe that they are benevolent and kind or just neutral because they haven't done anything. They're just there. They're just hanging out. Um, Yeah, I was going to say, like, while I probably wouldn't call them evil, I also don't know that you can really call them, like, kind. They just don't do anything. They're neutral. you're out there delirious on a mountain and they're just kind of like, hey, bro. (laughs) They, like, blink into existence for a second. Hey, you want to feel crazy for a second? Try this. Look back over your shoulder. Now I'm gone. (laughs) Look at your man. Now back to me. Now back at your man. Now back to me. <laughs> I'm a dark washer. He's not. Now I'm gone. Now I'm a horse. I've got a cool hat. Um. So anyway, the new Old Spice campaign is really weird. But others claim the dark watchers are physical manifestations of the Grim Reaper. Though where they got that idea, I have absolutely no clue. Yeah, that's kind of buckwild. So I would like to talk about... A couple of sightings in just a second. And sure, yeah. in terms of su- sources for these sightings, yeah, they're not like well sourced. I've got a couple of kind of firsthand ones from Reddit, from a Reddit thread. I mean, and listen, then I've got a if couple... you want hard facts, go to a hard science podcast. Yeah, exactly. You're not wrong. Like, we're here to have fun. All right. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> so there's actually a great article. I'm not going to really like go into right now, but there is a really cool article on um, the Santa Barbara Independent about In Search of the Dark Watchers, Thomas Steinbeck and Benjamin Broad collaborate on a new book. And it's sort of about like the origins of the Dark Watchers and then like the connection between them and landscape painting in the Santa Lucia Mountain area. It's it's very interesting and just kind of how they're a part of the landscape there because of the way that the stories have sort of evolved in the area. And it's it doesn't really the the tone of the piece and just kind of what it's specifically about isn't really in line with what I want to talk about right now, but it is a piece I wanted to bring up. Mm-hmm. And if you want to read about that, and if you're interested in kind of the intersection of art and folklore, which is of course long and very, very intertwined, it's it's a cool piece to check out. And the book looks neat. But anyway, I want to hop back over to Skeptoid, which is where they have some really great, just like unsighted sources. <laughs> There are unsighted sighting or unsighted sightings, which doesn't sound you know what I mean. Sighted with a C, sighted with an S. 
And there, this is all it says. It says, a few samples found in one online forum. So here you go. Here are some samples of sightings found in an unnamed online forum. So here's one. We see the Dark Watchers all the time. They're always out at dusk and dawn. All you see is just a tall, dark silhouette. They almost look like horses standing on their hind legs with the assistance of a walking stick. It's pretty creepy, and nobody has ever seen them close up. They disappear the moment you try to get closer. That's one. The horses thing is a little wild. So Bojack Horseman took a turn. Are you there? Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm ready. I thought you were going to keep going. I was <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I have more. I just wanted to make sure I discussed the possibility of Bojack Horseman being connected because it is also in California. But, but. Oh, no, I was so here for it. Okay, so here's another one. Up in an area where no human could climb, I saw a figure in plain daylight. I have never seen anything like it up in the mountain. It was darker than dark, could not explain it. Today I saw it again in the same spot. That's another one. Um, Here's another one. We passed the San Luis Obispo Reservoir, and as we drove on the road, I saw something at a distance down at the end of the mountain. It was a really big human figure, but it wasn't. It had a black cape, kind of like the Grim Reaper, and it was leaning over, holding onto a staff. Even in the mid-light, it was very black and reminded me of a raven. Hoo-hoo. I need to point out that the Grim Reaper is just a job, okay? It's yeah. what he does. It's not who he is. And I need people to stop defining him by that. Yeah. It's like, if you're a sandwich artist at Subway, when you clock out, that's not, like, who you are. You yeah, do you still like, want to be called a sandwich artist? Everywhere you go, you want people to point at you and say, hey, that thing looks kind of like a sandwich artist. <laughs> You don't just go home and, like, put slices of strangely smelly bread with, like, old deli meats together and just charge people for it. You don't, you're don't. you not on the clock all the time. That's what Subway is. Yeah. <laughs> Have you heard, Alex, of the mysterious sandwich artists of this? I can't even do it. I'm like, I was trying to figure out where I thought they would be and I couldn't get there. Yeah, there's no good finish to that joke. I mean, they're everywhere because there's a Subway everywhere. But... I've got one more from this particular piece, which is, here we go, a little bit longer. Not that long, but. We were coming home to the San Juan Batista side when we saw a very large, dark figure standing at the edge of the mountains. It appeared to have a large cape with straight shoulders that were very broad. It seemed to have a hunch on its back. At first, from a distance, I thought it was a condor, but when I got closer, it stood almost 10 feet tall. It did not notice us driving behind it, but when we found a spot on the cliffy road to turn around and get a better look... It was gone. (laughs) Surprise. So I pulled a couple that I just found on Reddit. Oh, yeah. Or I pulled one that I found on Reddit, I should say. But I found one. And this is interesting because this was someone's comment on a thread I I found. And it it wasn't a super populated thread. It didn't have a ton of activity. But there was a thread on one of the Reddit uh, or on the Reddit unexplained subreddit about the Dark Watchers. had a picture and was essentially saying, like, have you ever seen or heard anything like this? And this Redditor says, I grew up on a reservation in southern Ontario, Canada, and my parents always used to tell me about the little people. Interesting. Overlap with not this, but some other kind of folklore. Um, They would tell me that if my cousins and I were out playing and heard stuff like someone calling us or things to get our attention to not go and inspect because they were more than likely going to try to do something to you, whether it was a prank or something else. And apparently if you heard them in your house, it meant that you were up to no good and you had done something bad while out in the fields to anger them. Oh, no. I heard stuff as a kid while we were out playing in the fields and such. But then again, it could have been animals or my mind playing tricks on me due to the stories I was told. 
My mom and a couple of her family members had said they supposedly saw them when they were younger a couple of times, but I never saw anything, just heard things. And that's not inherently connected to the Dark Watchers, but it was a comment on the thread and I thought it was neat, so I pulled it. And it was, as far as I know, the only actual (laughs) Native person to give any thoughts on this subject from any of the sources I found, so. Totally fair. But also I was very interested in the use of, this isn't related to the Dark Watchers, but I thought you might be interested in the use of the phrase, the little people. I'm very fascinated by that, yeah. Because that, if you haven't listened to our fairies episode, is a term largely used in Irish and Scottish folklore to refer to the fae folk or the fair folk. And it's a it's a fairy term for when fairies traditionally are not dissimilar from what was being described there. I just think that's very neat. So speaking of sort of overlapping folklore, I want to talk about very briefly two other things that came up in my research that are related to the Dark Watchers. First, I want to hop over to an unpronounceable for me uh, <laughs> thing. So I'm going to just call it by its translation. This is a Scottish, uh, something from Scottish folklore. Translates to the big gray man or simply the gray man. It's the name of a presence or creature which is said to haunt the summit and passes of Ben McDuy the highest peak in the Cairngorms, and the second highest peak in Scotland and also in the British Isles. Essentially, there are very few eyewitnesses that have seen it, but those who have describe it as an extremely tall, dark figure or just as an unseen presence that causes uneasy feelings in people who climb the mountain. Other eyewitnesses describe it as a large humanoid standing over 10 feet tall with long arms and broad shoulders. Evidence of the existence of the creature is limited to the sightings and a few photographs of unusual footprints. Nearly all reports of it include the sound of footsteps crunching in the gravel just out of sight. So it's another dark, tall, humanoid figure appearing at a mountain. Yeah, that's something else. Mm-hmm. And there's some, uh, there's some accounts as well. There's several, but I'll just talk about one of them. In 1925, the noted climber J. Norman Colley recounted a terrifying experience he had endured while alone near the summit some 35 years before. I began to think I heard something else than merely the noise of my own footsteps. For every few steps I took, I heard a crunch, and then another crunch, as if someone was walking after me, but taking steps three or four times the length of my own. He was unable to make out the source of the noise because of the mist, and continued as the eerie crunch crunch sounded behind me. I was seized with terror and took to my heels, staggering blindly among the boulders for four or five miles." The similar story was correlated by Norman G. Forbes, who reported that he heard a mysterious clanking noise while climbing the same mountain in the summer mist. However, it proved to be too dear. <laughs> oh, well. He did say, and this reminds me, this brings me back to the, the sound that can create feelings in people. He said that these mountains have an uncanny power of inducing a feeling of eeriness in people. And that is very interesting to me. So, and, and, and I'm not even saying that the folklore, like the creatures, supposedly the Dark Watchers and then the Gray Man are linked so much as if we're talking about a more scientific explanation, there's something to be said for a mountainous atmosphere combined with wind at the frequency that creates the sense of dread leading to the creation of these kinds of stories. That I think is very neat. Definitely. I mean, there's a lot to be said in general for just like, one, the feeling that you get being out in such an untouched place. Like it just, it puts your brain in a totally different space to begin with. But scientifically, yeah, there are a lot of factors at play that cause you to, you know, judge your surroundings differently. And I think because we're so used to such 
an insular environment. And this is not be being like, well, if we didn't stay inside all the time, like, no, no, I'm just saying like, we're used to our surroundings and our sort of like survival precepts develop based on that. When you go into a totally different set of surroundings, like all of your senses are kicking into high gear, right? Because you're trying to like process everything very differently. You don't have a reference point for it so much. You know, a couple with that, like sound acts really strangely in the mountains. And especially when you're like these high altitudes and the air is thinner and like all of your senses are just operating very differently. It's a totally surreal experience. It is. It's very true. And I've talked about it a lot, but isolation does really weird things to your brain, particularly Mm -hmm. as humans. We're not meant to be completely solitary for long stretches of time. Something I remind myself when I don't feel like going out and doing things with people, but like we aren't. (laughs) Humans live longer in communities than when they live by themselves. Like it's, it's how we developed, like we developed as like a creature that lived in groups and isolation does weird things to us. It affects our health and it affects our mental health a lot. And there's something to be said for spending a lot of time alone, starting to cause you to your brain to fill in, like I've said before, fill in the gaps. Oh yeah, definitely. But Uh, One last thing that I thought was neat, and again, this is only sort of very tangentially related, but it came up in the comments of the Reddit thread, and I wanted to research. Someone from Australia in the Reddit thread mentioned something from the folklore of indigenous people of northern Australia, and they're called Mimis, which is a very cute little name. And they are... It's pronounced memes, Addison. Oh, my God. (laughs) M-I-M-I. They're fairy-like beings. They are described as having extremely thin and elongated bodies, so thin as to be in danger of breaking in the case of high wind. So to avoid this, they spend most of their time living in rock crevices. Oh. And they're depicted as looking kind of like shadows. Uh, uh, The best I can describe it is they look kind of like a much friendlier slender man. They're like... (laughs) Just very long and thin and shadowy, but they don't look malicious in any way. And most of the artistic depictions, they're like just kind of hanging out in the in the in the forests or hunting and stuff like that. They're said to hunt and they they live on kangaroo meat. Uh, oh goodness! But yeah, so um, they've got to be like jacked. But they're no, they're so tiny and fragile. Their bodies will break in the high wind. Then how on earth do they take down a kangaroo? Have you seen those things? They're sneaky, I guess. I don't know. But I don't care how sneaky. Like you sneak up on I a kangaroo. The cryptids, wiki, the cryptids wiki did not tell me how they take down a kangaroo, only that they are capable of it. Maybe they trap them. Like, maybe they set traps. Maybe. Maybe they trap maybe them. Maybe they're like trap spiders. They, like, bury holes <laughs> in the sand. Please don't say <laughs> spider to me. <laughs> maybe they are, like... Many liked critters in the dead. That's worse. It's not better. Here's the thing. Also, and you were in my dream last night, so I can tell you about this. I meant to tell you earlier. I had a very weird dream last night. A lot of weird stuff was happening in it. Like my mom hired a chauffeur that wanted to move into our attic or something. It was weird. But specifically, <laughs> I was hanging out with you. And remember, somebody posted in the Cryptic Keeper Appreciation Group, which is the norm, which is a great space. It's a great place to hang out. But somebody posted a video that I should not have looked at about oh, the, um, the ghost crab. No, about uh, sea spiders. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, ghost crabs are great. I like them. I used to like chase them on the beach as a child. They're cute. No, I like crabs. No, about like sea spiders, underwater, like ocean Mm -hmm. spiders. I'm literally like goosebumps are erupting all over my skin as I even just say these words. And I had a dream about one last night. Oh, I'm so sorry. They are horrible. Yeah. It was, I was hanging out with you and you handed me a salad 
And there was a oh. little sea spider in the salad that oh, you hadn't no. noticed. And I was very upset. Well, I'm glad I didn't do it on purpose. No, you didn't do it on purpose. But anyway, I know that the most boring thing in the world is hearing people describe their dreams to you. So congratulations, Cryptic Keeper podcast listeners. You got that for free. But I just needed to say, don't say spiders to me right now. That's all. That was the end game of that. Gotcha. I apologize. But maybe they do. Maybe they do leave traps like the thing that I won't name. Maybe they do. Oh, it doesn't matter. I know what I'm talking about, so the goosebumps are happening anyway. Oh, my God. This is my own personal, like, infrasound. It just <laughs> – the dread. It turns out that body. the infrasound is actually the exact same frequency of a person saying the word spider. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Um, so anyway, uh, and there is more to be read on uh, The Dark Watchers. It's a lot of crossover past a certain point. It's a lot of the same kind of rephrasing of the same three things. So I will just leave you with this, a reading of the poem that a lot of people consider. And it's a, it's, a po- it's a metaphor. The poem is not meant to be literally about these things. However, considering the area in which the poet grew up and the kind of like stories that potentially influence his work, it's often referenced uh, in relationship to the Dark Watchers. So I will leave you with the poem by Robinson Jeffers, who lived and wrote in Big Sur, and in 1937 published the poem, Such Counsels You Gave to Me. But when he approached the fall of the hill toward Halrens, he saw, apparently, a person on the verge, outlined against the darkening commissure of the farther hills, intently gazing into the valley. The young man's tired and dulled mind, bred in these hills, taught in the city, reverted easily toward his dead childhood. He thought it might be one of the watchers, who are often seen in this length of coast range, forms that look human to human eyes, but certainly are not human. They come from behind ridges and watch. But when he approached it, he recognized the shabby clothes and pale hair, and even the averted forehead and the concave line, from the eye to the jaw, so that he was not surprised when the figure turning toward him in the quiet twilight showed his own face. Then it melted and merged into the shadows beyond it. The young man thought heavily that in his state of mind and body hallucination was not surprising. So, obviously, that's a specific metaphor, but one very deliberate reference to the Watchers. And also, unintentionally, kind of a neat way for me to remind people that one of the potential explanations for the sighting is a phenomenon that involves someone seeing their own shadow cast against a cloud bank. So saying, I saw this thing and it turned out it was me all along. Well, it's obviously, again, deliberately a metaphor and the poet is trying to say something with it. I thought it was very neat. So I would like to leave you with that. And that is my thoughts and my uh, little presentation on the Dark Watchers. Pretty cool. Yeah, I think thank you so much for that. Yeah, they are neat. I thought I wanted something a little spooky, but not um, something that would be upsetting. And also I thought I'd get a little local with it. So, yeah, there you go. Way to dive right in, immerse yourself and in of, the new culture. Yeah, and one of my favorite things about having moved here is the fact that there are still mountains. Because I grew up in a valley. Mountains are very sort of integral to my mental well-being. That's, it's a weird thing uh, to say. Hard, but, same. Yeah, no, I get it. I grew up in a valley, and the period of time in which I lived in the Midwest, there were a lot of things that were making me very unhappy. But the lack of mountains was really intense and powerful to me, and... There were, don't get me wrong, the metaphor was also present, but I can say right now that for the last thing I ever performed at my old school in Illinois, I uh, sang I Miss the Mountains from Next to Normal because it was very deliberate. It was literal and figurative for me at that point in time in both ways. And I 
did not get through the song. I did cry and it was a lot, but it was good. See, when I moved to Virginia, I had the same problem because I was used to many more mountains. Your mountain dosage decreased a lot. It did. Yeah, yeah it was rough. I'm sorry about that, but... It's okay. I'm doing a little bit better now. I can look right out my apartment window and I can see like a whole bunch mm-hmm. of trees, which is doing good for me. And I'm like 10 minutes from the Manassas National Park. So that's, that's so cool. good. That's so good. Mm-hmm. I found, uh, once I find a way to get you out here to me, you know, for our first Cryptid Keeper live show or whatever, right, um, uh, I want to take you to, there's a place in Pasadena uh, called the Huntington Gardens, which Ooh. is, it was essentially, it was an estate. It was somebody, it was a very wealthy guy's estate. And I have my own thoughts and feelings about billionaires, but we're not going to do that right now. Uh, but regardless of that, it was after his uh, death converted into what is a like museum and then expansive botanical gardens. And oh, very cool. there's a rose garden. There's a huge like cactus garden. Um, it's, it's, it's really cool. Uh, do they have a poison garden? I don't think... They do. <laughs> this is maybe like a horrible thing to say on air because if God forbid I were ever involved in some sort of like, like if I was ever being framed for something, this could be held against me. But I think one of the coolest things in the world are poison gardens. No, they're neat. Actually, I agree with that. I, I have always wanted to go to. Um, there's one that I've read about that's in England that I want to go to, and now I don't remember what it's I called. I saw one in Ireland uh, that was really really cool. But ugh, um, jealous. No, there's yeah, not a sorry. poison garden, but there is a because people were very into um, fetishization of East Asian cultures in the like 1920s when this was established. There is a beautiful, um, like it's still beautiful, like it, it derived from something a little bit not so great, but it's a beautiful spot. There is a uh, Japanese garden with uh, like imported all these imported plants and a koi pond. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's really gorgeous. Anyway. Okay. Well, anyway, that's a, l- a little bit off track. So yeah. it's okay. in case you don't know, we can be found on Twitter at CryptKeepPod, C-R-Y-P-T-K-E-P-P-O-D. You can also find us on Facebook as The Cryptid Keeper, or you can join our Facebook group, which is The Cryptid Keeper Appreciation Group, full of fans and listeners and probably some critics. I don't know, but it's a good time. We appreciate everybody in there, and they appreciate the show, so... We share a lot of fun, like, memes and stories and articles, and some people have some really, really neat projects that they showcase in there, too. It's always a really great time. Oh, yeah. Some, like, super cool art. Oh, yeah. You can also find us on Patreon at The Cryptid Keeper. Anything else I'm missing? You can email us at The Cryptid Keeper. No, at CryptKeepPod at gmail.com. I'm losing my mind a little bit here. It's okay. We're all we're all mad here, uh, but <laughs> it's um, a good place to send us if you have listener stories. I would love to do our next listener stories episode, maybe sometime close to Halloween. And then if you send us a listener story, just tell us if you wish to remain anonymous or what name to refer to you by in the episode, because I never want to accidentally, like if someone wants to remain anonymous, I am always going to err on the side of anonymity because I don't want to accidentally just blow up someone's spot on right. the show. You know, or um, if somebody has a name attached to their email address, we have no way of knowing if that's your preferred name or we don't want to like accidentally dead name anybody on air exactly i don't want to i don't want to dead name somebody or just accidentally provide more information than they want on the public airwaves so if you send us a listener story just let us know what you'd like to be called or if you want to remain anonymous or go by some kind of really cool code name like the eagle or something Uh, and (laughs) i think that is about everything our audio production is done by the inestimable val patrone and our music is by the ever talented andrew giada there's such great folks. Val and I are going to a cat cafe on Saturday. Well, <laughs> so, okay. By the time this episode is released, it will have happened in the past. But All right. Well, then time capsule. But anyway. Time's not real, so. Yep, it's fine. So as always, we hope we can keep you around and stay safe out there.